0: Supporting the multicultural aspect of organ and tissue donation within the organ procurement industry has become the life's work of Infinite Legacies Community Outreach Director, Aisha Johnson. Also the current president for the Association of Multicultural Affairs and Transplantation, also known as AMAC. I'm Marian Shuck, the host of Let's Talk Hope a podcast devoted to sharing the inspirational stories of organ and tissue donor families, donor recipients, and subject matter experts. Aisha, let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in the organ procurement organization? And if you could give us a bit of trajectory on your experiences and history.
1: My story is a little bit unique. I actually Joined our industry back in 2007, but it started back in 2001 in California. Um, my best friend, she actually was working for the organ procurement organization, One Legacy, and invited me to their donor remembrance ceremony as just a special a guest of hers. And when I went to the event, that was my first time hearing about organ donation. I never thought about organ donation. I don't remember being approached about it at the DMV back then. And hearing those stories of the recipients who um, had a second chance of life and thanking their organ donors for that gift, that moved me in a sense that I wanted to work in this industry. And I waited six years for that opportunity to come up in 2007 at One Legacy as a hospital services um, coordinator. And that's when my journey began in our industry and I haven't looked back since. And so tell us a little bit about what a hospital services specialist does. And the organ donation and transplant world, a hospital services coordinator is that um, liaison between each donor hospital that our organ procurement organization works with. So our job essentially is to build relationships with our hospital administrators, the doctors, the nurses, the key staff, unit staff. We're making sure that policies and procedures are in place. We're doing constant education about organ donation because organ donation doesn't happen every day in a hospital. So we're always that presence. We're the go-between. We do a lot of Huddles where we're just making sure everyone's on the same page. If a organ donation referral comes in, we're having meetings and we're updating our our internal organ donation staff about what's going on in our hospitals. And we're being what I essentially say that that relationship keeper and making sure that things happen as they should. And if they don't, then we um, assess the situation and we do more education. And we're just that buffer in between the hospitals and the organization. And one of the important
0: things, Aisha, is that you made the switch from hospital development to community outreach. And tell us a little bit about why you made the switch and why
1: it's so important to you. I've always worked in a nonprofit setting, even in my college career. I started off as a community outreach coordinator for the Girl Scouts of America when I was 19, At the time, I didn't know how much impact I was making on our community. My job at the time was to go to underserved middle schools in Long Beach, California, and spend one hour with sixth grade girls about what it means to be a Girl Scout because their families couldn't afford to give them that Girl Scout experience. And I look back on that, that my career stayed that way until I got into organ donation, but I worked for the American Lung Association as a program coordinator. I had previously worked for the Raul Foster Children's Positive Plan as their program director to help foster youth with creative arts. I'm a former foster child, so I've always had that outreach in me. But when I was in hospital services, I I'm a relationship starter. I love relationships. I love talking to people. It's my thing. But when it clicked that I didn't belong in hospital services anymore, a coworker of mine had reached out to the HD staff and said that she couldn't make an event in Baltimore. Was anybody willing to attend this event? And I said I could. And I was at a community event and so many Black people were coming up to me at the table and said, want to be an organ donor because I was an organ donor and we looked alike. And that's when I was like, whoa, what, you know, like, I don't want you to sign up because I'm an organ donor and I'm a Black woman. And I know there's so many myths and misconceptions about donation in the Black community, but that's when I had my switch. I was like, I belong in the community. I want to educate people properly about the importance of organ, eye, and tissue donation. And Two years later, I wrote a new job description and I moved over to community outreach as the first community educator.
0: And so interesting that you say that you are a relationship starter because you are. I met you through our mutual association with AMAT, which is the Association for Multicultural Affairs and Transplantation. But before we go there, I want to talk about your shift from California to Baltimore, because there you created and developed the Decision Project, which is a higher level outreach to particularly Black folks who, as you just mentioned, have a lot of myths and misconceptions around organ and tissue donation and you know how they participate, how they advocate. So we met through AMAT. But you created the Decision Project and you were one of the first people to really embrace it throughout the organ and tissue donation industry and to say, here, here's something that we have to give back to communities. And can you tell us just a little bit how you made that shift from California to Baltimore and a little bit about the Decision Project?
1: Great question. How I made that shift moving from um, California to Baltimore I knew California wasn't for me as far as seeing more black and brown people in um, executive positions and just more of leadership roles. And when I used to visit the East Coast, I would see so many movers and shakers and so much culture. And I knew I had to leave. Three months of doing some research and uh, applying for jobs, I got hired at Living Legacy Foundation at the time. And making that shift from being a hospital services coordinator to an in-house coordinator to community outreach. My first year being that community educator, I used to work with the motor vehicle departments, the high schools, our workplace partners. And then if I needed to be out in the community, I'll, I'll do that. And this is when I knew our community outreach wasn't the way I would hope it to be. We were at an event. And we were sponsoring um, the Frederick Keys. It's a D level baseball team, really popular in Frederick, Maryland. And they had their Donate Life Day. The team were wearing their Donate Life jerseys. And I was sitting at the table with my brochures. And every single person who came to my table showed me their heart. Everybody got it. Everybody supported organ donation. And I was sitting here, why am I here? This community obviously gets it, they're supportive, they are donors. I'm not supposed to be here. And I knew I needed to do something different. Fast forward to the management position coming open, talked to some of my mentors and got the job. The first thing I did when I became the manager of our department was to reevaluate how we were doing our outreach. I felt that we were being reactive where we were waiting for organizations to reach out to us to do a health fair or in-service, and we weren't being proactive. And what I decided to do, I was having a conversation with our family services manager at the time. We both were new managers. Our offices were next to each other. So we were growing up in this new world together. And I sat and talked to her, and she was like, you know, let's pull some data. And that's exactly what we did. I ended up pulling all of our donor um, registries in the state of Maryland. So, how many people who were signing up to be organ donors? And I noticed a particular zip code in Baltimore City, 21215, and that neighborhood is called Park Heights. They had the lowest amount of people um, signing up to be organ donors. Okay, we can start there, right? But it got even better as far as data and not better in a sense of um, what we do. My other coworker, she was the manager of HS at the time. I was telling her about this idea, and she was like, "Oh, you want to look at this report? I pulled from UNOS. I actually asked them to pull the wait list by our hospitals. And Sinai Hospital in Baltimore is in two one two one five. They had the highest amount of people waiting for a transplant in Maryland in that one zip code. And that's when I knew something wasn't right." Here you are, you have the same zip code with people saying no to donation, they're saying no at the hospital, yet they need a transplant the most. And that's how the decision project was born. It basically told me we have to be in this community, we have to talk to the right people and we have to figure out what's going on. And that's the start of it. It was a process on how we got to where we are with the decision project. And
0: where are you now with the decision project? What, what's been some of your biggest outcomes?
1: The biggest outcomes with the decision project has been our, our increase in um, donor registrations, our increase in authorizations, and our public trust. And when we started in 2016, we pulled the data before, so it was 2015, was the data we were looking at. 9% of people in and 21215 were designated donors. Five years later, when we put that same data, we have had over a 500% increase. At that time, 41% of people at the hospital were saying yes to organ donation from 2 and 2 and 5 5 years later, it increased to 71%. And we also know that we can't say TDP was the entire thing on why it um, increased that way. But I do know that the decision project had some impact because we branded ourselves in that community for five years with the decision project. What our number one goal was to listen to that community on what they needed through focus groups. They told us they were living in a place that's a food desert, a food swamp. They had food insecurities, high violence. They wanted to get their kids off the street after school. We sent them to camps. We got a grant with the Maryland Food Bank to help with these food insecurities. We did more gospel fest and more education in 21215. And I think they trusted us because the focus groups had told us that they knew who Living Legacy were at the time more than they knew who a hospital in their community was. So we knew that worked. And we wanted to brand it and keep it going and start looking at other zip codes throughout our service area. And Aisha, can you tell us a little bit in the grand scheme of things,
0: why is it so important to drill down into the data and to really go into these communities and help them advocate for themselves as we talk about organ and tissue donation? You talk about they had the highest need, but yet they registered the least,
1: I think the data is important because it's one of the driving factors that we could nest in. And I feel like a lot of communities are overlooked when we don't look at data, right? For instance, during COVID when we the pandemic first hit, 21215 had the highest rates of COVID and deaths. And it, it that it, that just shows me that this community in Baltimore City doesn't have the resources that they, they need. And so when you look at data and the data is changing ever every day, right? Like it increases one year and then we may see some decreases in the same zip code, but we shouldn't give up on it. And I think when we're looking at our organizations and we want to increase trust designation rates, organ donations in general, we need to go by the data because if we don't, we're missing out on those communities that don't have a voice. And I think that gets missed if we're not looking hard at our numbers.
0: That's a great point because you mentioned the consistency. And that's one of the things that we've heard in the last several years, the lack of consistency in supporting these communities from an OPO perspective, right? And so It's important to have organizations such as the Association for Multicultural Affairs and Transplantation be that advocate or be that voice to be able to support the employees and the communities of color uh, through an association that focuses on that lens. As a former or past president for AMAC, I got involved in the organization in 2013 and had such a, a huge trajectory in my life in terms of personal and professional from being part of the AMAT family. And I met you. And so now it has been my privilege and honor to support you and your journey and to see you last October ascend to the AMAT presidency. Can you talk a little bit about why an association such as AMAT is so important to the organ procurement organizations?
1: I think AMAD is important in our landscape because we do get overlooked in, when it comes to organ donation and transplantation, even though we're the highest demographic waiting for a life-saving transplant. And if we don't have people in our organization, people of color, people from diverse backgrounds speaking about the importance of education, the importance of being an advocate, the importance of being um, someone on the transplant side, helping Black and brown people get transplants because they know the hardships and disparities that one group suffers from just a long line of discrimination in the past. AMAP, Wouldn't be able to be who we are in OPOs and organ organ organizations and tissue banks and hospitals. Wouldn't be able to get transplants without an association like AMAT. We are the subject matter experts when it comes to ethnic education, multicultural education, minority education. And without this association, we wouldn't have that trust because let's face it, people of color... Black and brown people, um, indigenous people, we trust hearing information from our own communities. So having AMAP be that pillar in this stratosphere and giving out our resources and making sure we're sharing the stories, I think donation wouldn't be able to increase without an association like AMAP.
0: What are some of the goals that you have surrounding a couple of things? One surrounding bringing other people up within the organization that can reach the same levels and goals that you and I reached um, and supporting and mentoring uh, people. Because as we know, there's quite a deficit for people of color in leadership programs in the OPOs uh, today. And we also know that we need to create and develop pipelines. And then the second question I would ask you is what do you see as your most important role as AMAT
1: president? Thank you. Those are really good questions. And um, I'll start off first saying that one of my biggest or one of my goals, I'm not gonna say biggest because I feel like they're all equal to each other, is to make sure that AMAT continues to stay on the forefront nationally when in the stratosphere of organ donation and um, transplant. And membership is really important, mainly, as you mentioned, the mentorship. Um, I'm making sure that our committee chairs and vice chairs are diverse and newer leaders within the AMAT field and not always someone who may come from a managerial role, because I think that's where sometimes organizations get stuck that we put someone in a senior role for a lower level committee and not allowing that frontline staff to gain those responsibilities and knowledge through a higher level committee role. And so that's one thing I wanna make sure that we revisit our mentorship program within AMAT. And I will I allow our advisory board to help guide that. And I think that I wanna make sure that our membership knows that they have this resource, but then also empowering them to step up. Because I feel when you and I met and you and I had a conversation back in Charleston in 2019, and you asked me my goals and aspirations, and I told you, and you were like, if there's a seat on my board, I'll make sure you were there. And you did. And I want to do the same for those behind me. Make sure that not only people who are AMAT members, born and bred, but people who may not know about AMAT and lo- using their skill sets from their organization to better ours. And so, I do hope that we revamp our membership uh, mentor membership program, and then we make sure that we have mentors who has that knowledge, because I don't believe everybody can be a mentor, and I think we got to match the right mentors with the mentees, and then. Your second question, (laughs) um, what does it mean for me to be, you know, AMAP president? I think for me, I'm here to show my colleagues that have been in this field for years and newly in this field that they can be the next AMAP president. Um, I want to make sure that they understand that we also have to do some of the work to make sure that we get into different positions and that it may not have to be in your organization. Allow AMAT to put you in roles and chairs and committees and ad hocs and work groups so you can get the skills that you may need to be better at your organization. Or if you have to leave that organization to get into a, a managerial role or leadership role, that is okay However, I shouldn't stifle your your leadership skills because I want to stay in my leadership position. That's very good. When you think about uh,
0: organ procurement organizations, have been around over thirty five plus years. It's typically been the same old status quo at the top, and that really hasn't changed in thirty five years. And as we Talk about this. I'm not sure if leadership from OPOs will listen to this, but I know that we have an audience of people who are in the industry who will listen. And so, what would you have them take back to their leadership about AMED and about really investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion at all levels and all facets of the organization?
1: What I would like senior executives in this industry to take back from our conversation today, Marion, about incorporating DEI into their organizations is that if they don't, they would never have a, a rounded organization. And our jobs in this field is to save lives, right? And that is getting a yes from our communities and our families, But it also means that your staff looks like the community you're serving. And I will say that one organization that gets it really well and their leadership is diverse, their leadership looks like their community, is Donor Network West, ran by CEO Janice Whaley, who happens to be our first Black woman CEO in this industry. And it breaks my heart every time I have to hear the first. It's 2024 and we're still hearing the first. And that is something that I hope we do not have to say anymore. I hope when you got promoted to your leadership program, it should never have to be the first. It should just be saying, Congratulations. You know, Miss Shuck is the executive vice president, not she is the first black woman. And I feel if we don't embrace this as a whole and Get back on that train we were back in 2020 after George Floyd's death when everybody was embracing some sort of DEI and it's falling off the radar nationally on a leadership scale. I just read that in Harvard Business Review that we're gonna go backwards and we're gonna find ourselves wondering why that wait list is getting higher with the need of more black and brown people, because the mistrust is gonna die out and people are gonna start saying no if we don't look like the communities we're serving.
0: Wow. That's very powerful. And so apropos for this time, as you mentioned, you know, DEI was at the height during George Floyd. And now we see that companies, you know, were on the bandwagon, DEI this, DEI that. But now as we take a step back and organizations take a step back and don't realize that it's so important, I think organizations such as AMAT, in especially under your leadership, have the opportunity to really keep us at the forefront of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, because we want to make sure people feel like they belong where they are. They belong in the organ and tissue donation space. And they should feel belonging as they advocate for themselves to either be uh, recipients, or if they experience a tragedy as a donor family, that they advocate for themselves. And so I thank you for that powerful statement. More importantly, what keeps you in this industry?
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, that is a heavy loaded question. What keeps me in this industry? The easy answer is because I love what I do, but the, the main reason is because they're outside of organ donation and transplantation, health disparities is just so rampant and you know, underserved and marginalized communities. And I know that the work that I am doing, that I'm trying to do, that I'm helping others do, will benefit society as a whole. And organ donation just happened to be the field that I am in currently. So if it wasn't organ donation, it could be another program, but it, it would have always been back to um, dismantling these health disparities. And the fact that working with so many people in our industry that is an AMAP and building strong bonds and relationships and leaning on those relationships, because this industry is hard. And it's hard when you don't have a network of, you know, people who understand what you're going through as a minority employee, as the minority association, you know, you have to lean on others. And I think that's what keeps me driven every day that I can sit here and if I'm having a bad day, I can call on my mentors and we can talk about it and whether it's one of those things that put your bootstraps on, get over it kind of conversation, that's fine. But I think it's the people and the fact that every day, a little change is happening because I stayed and I'm here and that's why I love what I do. I like that. I really like that because
0: you definitely have to have a village to be able to be in this this industry. I am in April, it'll be 15 years. And how long have you been? Next month, it'll be 16. <laughs> so we've been here 15 and 16 years. And I always think about, especially as we talk about, you know, goals, personal, professional, as we sit here on the precipice of a new year, what's next? What's next for Aisha Johnson as you wear all of these hats?
1: I love your questions. <laughs> you do not ask the easy questions. What What's next for me? And I'm going to do a uh, three-part, okay? So I'll start off with what's next here at Infinite Legacy. Um, what's next is we just merged with another organization last January. And what's next for me is to make sure that my team feel supported in this major transition. And we're reaching our new communities that has low registration rates and um, may not have felt heard previously within their communities. So just staying that leader and making sure that I'm running a department that's going to meet our organizational goals, which is to have more people say yes. Professionally within AMAT, I see myself um, being a leader that allows my board and advisory board to lift me up and advise me on the best practices for AMAT. I never felt that AMAT was a one-person show. AMAT has always been a, a village. However, it's time that we actually used our village to our best of our ability to get our membership and have them have the resources that we provide, Amat has so many resources and people with so much knowledge. And now it's time to expand it and give it out and be that unique organization. And as you mentioned, we are and we should be art the subjectmatic experts when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I just hope to see it grow and the next president after me and just continue to thrive and then. Personally, for me, what's next is to start thinking about my next steps on what I would like my career to look like. And, you know, I do hope that one day that I can be in a position to be in a C-suite level. Aisha, from f-
0: past president to current president, I have to tell you, it has just been such a delight to see you grow. It has been such a delight to see your trajectory and it really filled my cup when we were in Baltimore to see you become president in a way that I know will continue not only to grow AMAT but more importantly, to continue to grow uh, new perspectives, new thoughts, new leadership within the organ procurement industry. And I just wanna thank you for your conversation today. I wanna thank you for being my friend and now a peer, right? Which is so important that you help people move from where they are to ascend wherever they want to be. And that is, I think the true purpose of a leader. And so I'm very proud of you. And I just thank you for continuing to bring that breath of fresh air and being my guest today.
1: Thank you, Marion, and thank you for having me on this podcast. And without mentors and leaders like yourself, I wouldn't be able to be in this position. So just keep being who you are.
0: Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Hope a podcast devoted to sharing organ donation stories and turning tragedies into triumphs. If you like what you've heard, please listen and subscribe to Let's Talk Hope wherever you get your podcasts. We encourage you to start the conversation about organ and tissue donation with your loved ones today and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor at giftofhope.org. Let's Talk Hope was produced by Rivet 360's Vice President of Marketing and Sales, Terry Lydon. Podcast producer, Jennifer O'Neill. Gift of Hope staff, community outreach coordinator, Liana Henderson. Marketing and communication specialist, Emily Frederick, and staff assistant, Margaret Tiani. River360 also produces Gift of Hope's Spanish language podcast, Hablemos de la Esperanza, hosted by Luis Ortega. If you'd like to hear more great podcasts, please visit rivet360.com.